0: Uh, for the rest of us, we are going to be in Psalm 34. We thought it would be a good idea if we were going to sing Psalm 34. might as well preach it too. Um, so you will find that on page 488 and 489 in your Pew Bibles. If you uh, didn't, didn't happen to bring your copy of God's Word with you today. By the way, uh, we do have a take em if you don't got em policy with regard to our Pew Bibles. So if you do not have a copy of God's Word at home, please take that one home as our uh, gift to you, uh, that you may continue to benefit from reading God's Word each day. Again, we are in Psalm 34, and I would invite you to please stand as we honor the Word of the Lord as I read it for us this morning. This is the CSB translation. Concerning David, when he pretended to be insane in the presence of Abimelech, who drove him out, and he departed. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he and rescues them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. You are his holy ones. Fear the Lord, for those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry, but those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is someone who desires life, loving a long life to enjoy what is good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry for help. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil to remove all memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. One who is righteous has many adversities, but the Lord rescues him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil brings death to the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be punished. The Lord redeems the life of his servants and all who take refuge in him will not be punished. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Sometimes life just drives you crazy, doesn't it? Okay. We'll take a few amens there. So, it just drives us crazy. Now, of course, it depends on what kind of crazy we're talking about. There's the, the lighter kind of crazy. Uh, recently, in the last couple of years, my part of the county anyway, uh, we've been putting up traffic circles literally everywhere you can go. And And my fellow citizens apparently don't understand the concept of traffic circles. <laughs> it's a yield, not a stop sign. If there's no one coming from the left, proceed, please. And then there's toilet paper that at one time, not too long ago, was worth its weight in gold. And that was if you could find it, right? You want to drive someone crazy? Walk in the house from going grocery shopping and tell them, no dear, we don't have any more toilet paper." Or or maybe you've heard of somebody selling a kidney for a Taylor Swift concert ticket. Actually, I haven't actually heard of that happening, but would it surprise any of us at this point? No, I don't think it would. That's the lighter kind of crazy. There is, of course, a heavier kind of crazy. The kind of crazy where in this day and age, somehow you go to a public place and you have to be mindful of where your exits are and how you'll handle that situation if that goes down. And as uh, Brother Wayne was praying for earlier, you want to talk about being driven crazy. No one, and I mean absolutely no one, I don't have enemies, but if I had one, if my worst enemy, I would not wish it upon them to have to bury their 25-year-old son like the Trostback family had to this past Thursday. Don't think that this father of a 25 year old young lady didn't notice his age and just think for a moment. What if? It's bound to drive you crazy. The broken world we live in, all the things we deal with. And then there's the, they did what kind of crazy. And that brings us to Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is one of 14 psalms that actually tell us the historical setting, the context uh, in a, a prescription or in the introduction. And so before we even get to verse 1, we read concerning David when he pretended to be insane in the presence of Abimelech who drove him out and he departed. So we'll, we'll, we'll start with that question. David did what? He pretended to be insane in front of King Achish of Gath, identified in Psalm 34 as Abimelech, to keep from being killed. Well, the act worked, and David was freed. We read this story in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 10 through 15. David fled that day from Saul's presence and went to King Achish of Gath. But Achish's servants said to him, isn't this David, the king of the land? Don't they sing about him during their dances? Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. David took this to heart and became very afraid of King Achish of Gath, so he pretended to be insane in their presence. He acted like a madman around them, scribbling on the doors of the city gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Look, you can see the man is crazy, Achish said to his servants. Why did you bring him to me? And I love this part. Do I have such a shortage of crazy people that you brought this one to act crazy around me? Is this one going to come into my house? Now, I have to stop there. Don't you just hear the cry of every parent who does laundry saying to their child, do I need another pair of dirty socks Five minutes after you put them on, leg on the floor. Now that should get a name in. All right. Now, not to criticize a great warrior a few millennia later, but I don't think this was David's finest strategic move. Anyone recognize the name of the city that David has run to? Gath. Perhaps you've heard of one of its more famous uh, citizens. This was. Goliath of Gath's hometown. And this wasn't long after David had killed him. No wonder David was afraid. But why was he on the run in the first place? Flashback time. Fourteen years approximately passed between David's anointing by Samuel and his ascension following the deaths of Saul and his sons. Now, First Samuel t- chapter 21 takes place early in that period, not long after David was anointed and he had killed Goliath. Now, in case you're wondering, uh, this discrepancy between the name Achish in uh, 1 Samuel and Abimelech in Psalm 34, Abimelech means my father is king. In other words, most likely what we're dealing with here is a title like Pharaoh or emperor now, the sequence of events leading up to our uh, 1 Samuel 21 begins in chapter 15 when Saul was rejected as king of Israel. And then shortly thereafter, David was anointed by Samuel as the new king. Then David began to serve in the court of Saul. And then, not long after that, David killed Goliath. Saul became jealous of David's popularity. He tried to kill David, and I'm skipping a few things here, uh, David then escaped due to the faithfulness of his best friend, Jonathan. David's flight followed Jonathan's secret message to David that his life remained in danger because of Saul's jealousy. And after the tragic and heartbreaking separation of these two brothers from different mothers, he went from the proverbial frying pan to the fire. He ends up in Gath in the home of his slain enemy on the way there he stops at nob a place called nob and he got provisions that is the old bread of the presence uh, that was given to him by the priest and a weapon goliath's old sword what do we do when life drives us crazy well david's going to help us with that in psalm 34. the first thing we do is we proclaim the lord's greatness now, that wasn't the first thing you probably thought of. This is uh, counterintuitive, isn't it? When we are in despair and we're in turmoil, with dark clouds of uncertainty and pain swirling about us, the last thing we're naturally inclined to do is to praise the Lord. But this is exactly what we see David do here and in Psalm 56. Again, remember the historical context. David is fleeing for his life. He is in danger and Psalm 56 is the other Psalm that we know was written around this occasion. In fact, Psalm 56 was written while David was held captive. We know that because of how Psalm 56 begins where it says, quote, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. David uh, wrote this during his captivity. So that makes his words in verses 10 and 11 of Psalm 56 even more helpful as we interpret Psalm 34. There he wrote, in God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can mere humans do to me? Even while captive among the Philistines, David proclaims the greatness of the Lord his God and professes his trust in the Lord, concluding, what can mere people or humans do to me? in the face of growing hostility and an increasingly broken world, believers in Christ should remember that question. Compared to the almighty Lord of heaven and earth, what can mere humans do to us? No matter who those mere humans are, your boss, your estranged spouse, your homeowners association, ultimately they can't touch you. Remember the warning of Christ in Luke chapter 12, verses four and five, where Jesus said, I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more, but I will show you the one to fear, fear him who has the authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. Now we're going to talk about what it means to fear the Lord later. For now, let's return our attention to verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 34. Remember, Psalm 34 was not written while David was still in captivity, but it was written after his release. After leaving Gath, he stopped to personally praise the Lord. Effectively, David says, I praise him. And that's where he wrote, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. David begins by praising the Lord personally. But that's not enough. As we see next in verse 3, David issues an invitation to join him in proclaiming the Lord's greatness. As he writes in verse 3, proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. In other words, we praise him together. Praising the Lord, proclaiming his greatness should be both a personal priority and a communal experience see what's happening here i praise him we praise him that it feeds on itself folks if this is the only time during the week that you open your bible that you sing god's praises that you go to him in prayer then you're missing something but look at how it feeds on itself as you pray and spend time in god's word during the week that feeds and fuels your ability to worship him together here if you've had a really tough week you're broken you're hurt you're in pain the best place you can be on a sunday morning is right here among god's people hearing them sing his praises hearing their testimonies about his goodness so that something that seems Forgotten in your life can be reaffirmed by the witness of those around you and that fuels you to go back into that life where things are not so great and things are seemingly hopeless but you're driven to go back there. Why? Because you've been surrounded by the cloud of witnesses who have testified and sung the praises of the same God that maybe a few days ago you might have felt abandoned by him and questioned his existence or his love for you. But now you've been around your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you're able to go back into that workplace, that home, or that hospital room, whatever it is that you're facing. So this, this is what David is calling us into. Now, listen, like any other church family, we have those whose health or other circumstances legitimately hinder them from being with us in corporate worship on a regular basis if if they're able to do it ever again so especially for those watching and listening uh this morning this is what i'm about to say is not for you but for the rest of us this verse speaks to the great critical importance of in-person worship anyone want to go back to that time when we rarely if ever left our houses and couldn't come to worship in person where we had to watch worship online. Can you see a raise of hands, anybody? All right, that's what I figured. Now, when that sort of thing is necessary, the ability to live stream a worship service is definitely far better than none at all. But otherwise, I want to repeat David's invitation. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me let us exalt his name together. Why does David want everyone else to join him in praising the Lord? Well, because God is that great. As David continues to proclaim the Lord's greatness in verses four through seven, he outlines four reasons we should call God great. And this is not an exhaustive list by any means. God is great because he answers Verse 4, David writes, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. This speaks to God's love for us. It speaks to his omnipresence. There's nowhere we can go where he isn't already present. This is also an important reminder that in our prayers, there are there is more than one answer from, from God. Sometimes people will say, well, God God didn't answer my prayer. I prayed for this, and he didn't answer it. Well, yeah, he did. He just might have said no instead of yes. Or he might have said wait. But he does answer us. He does hear us. David says in verse 5 that he God fills us with joy. This is another reason for his greatness. David writes, those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This speaks to God's faithfulness. It speaks to the fact that God is light. There is no darkness in Him. If you know the Lord, if you are in His presence regularly, then you will have that, that glow. There, there will be from time to time, uh, a radiance of joy. Now this last phrase, their face, their faces will never be ashamed, actually makes me think of Psalm 37. We're gonna be there in a few weeks. I'm not gonna preach that message for my brother. Uh, but it is worth noting that in first Uh, 25 of psalm 37 david who also wrote that psalm writes i have been young and now i am old yet i have not seen the righteous abandoned or his children begging for bread our faces those who follow the lord know the lord will never be ashamed but you want to rob someone of their joy take away their sense of security make them question whether they will have a roof over their heads or uh, a couple of meals in their stomachs tomorrow David says, those who look to the Lord will never be ashamed. Next, we see God is great because he rescues. Verse 6, the poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. Poor man? We sometimes forget where David started. But when he wrote Psalm 34, he was a poor man on the run. All of his possessions traveled with him. This speaks to God's omnipotence his sovereignty. There is nothing beyond God's power. And yet he is not just an all-powerful bully. He is one who exercises that power with great compassion and grace. He is our rescuer. And by the way, reality check here, guess what being rescued means? It means you were in danger in the first place. tests and trials should not surprise God's people. They are part of how he refines and transforms us. Finally, God is great because he is faithful. Verse seven reads, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he rescues them. Now, several, several commentators wrote this statement reminded them of an event much later in Israel's history. It's found in second Kings chapter six, verses 15 through 17. The prophet Elisha had been feeding the king of Israel intelligence about the king of Aram's military moves and plans. And they did not, that of course, did not please the king of the Arameans. So he trapped, tried to trap Elisha in the city of Dothan. And by surrounding it, but with what verse 14 calls a massive army. The next morning, Elisha's servant got up and went out of the city, perhaps to get something for breakfast. And this is how it's recorded in verses 15 through 17 of Kings, 2 Kings 6. When the servant of the man of God got up early and went out, he discovered an army with horses and chariots surrounding the city. So he asked Elisha, Oh master, what are we to do? Elisha said, Don't be afraid, for those who are with us outnumber those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed, Lord, Please open his eyes and let him see. So the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw that the mountain was covered with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Again, don't fear mere humans. Psalm fifty-six, eleven. God surrounds those who surround you. God often works for his own in ways and timing that we don't see. And this is just a taste of how great God is. Yes, he is great because he answers. And he's great because he fills us with joy despite our circumstances. Great because he rescues and because he is faithful. But he is so much more. And if you don't know him, keep listening. At this point, I want to make sure we don't miss something. God's greatness is not based on what he's done for you lately. God would be great without ever lifting a finger. God was great in eternity past, before he made all those wonderful plans to make all of this and all of us. God's greatness is grounded, first and foremost, in himself. Nothing need be added. He doesn't have to prove his greatness. He simply is great. So are you... Feeling crazy, life driving you crazy, proclaim the Lord's greatness and then taste and see that the Lord is so very good. David continues in verses 8 through 10. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. You are his, you who are his holy ones. Fear the Lord, for those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry. But those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. So David says we are to taste of the Lord. Dr. Uh, David Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, makes this observation in his commentary on Psalm 34. Quote, Jesus used words like this all the time. Jesus invited people to eat his flesh and drink his blood. He invited people to come to him and drink. He invited people to feast on him. These words remind us that God is calling us to go beyond personal knowledge to personal experience. Taste is not easily described. Taste is needs to be experienced. Now, on a day when we will share the Lord's Supper together, this should get our attention. And there's a sequence here to verse eight. First, we accept David's invitation to taste of the Lord. We try him and we experience him. And because of that experience, then we see. Once one truly experiences the Lord, then they see how good and great God really is. This was Job's experience. In chapter 42, verses 5 and 6, he makes a statement after all he's been through. This comes at the very end. After all of the loss, the pain, the suffering he's been through, Job says, I had heard reports about you. But now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I reject my words and am sorry for them. I am dust and ashes. In reality, God is too great and too wonderful for anyone to fully comprehend or appreciate. Tasting of him only gives us a glimpse of that leaves us wanting more, an eternity more. But this is David's testimony. The Lord is so good. And remember, this is not coming from someone with a perfect life who has no trouble. This is coming from David just after he has been delivered. Now, our tendency is to hide something good to keep it to ourselves, right? We, we don't always want everyone else to find that really great dentist or that awesome new restaurant because then it'll be hard to get a table there, right? It, it'll be hard to get an appointment, with them so sometimes we kind of keep the good stuff to ourselves that is not the approach we're to take here we can share god christ the gospel infinitely there's no need to hide jesus or keep him to ourselves yet how many christians are hoarders of the riches we have in christ instead of distributors the truth is the more we give jesus the way, away the more we have of him there's, there's nothing else like him. And so one reason why life might be driving you crazy is that you're bloated with blessings. We're, we're driven to the brink, some of us, uh, because we can't go down the hallway or move through a room, uh, you know, within our own selves, so to speak, without bumping into stuff. What if we gave those wonderful riches of Christ away to those who need them? What would that look like? anybody recognize the name Marie Kondo kind of of Netflix fame? This is the, th- this just brought this to mind. I was like, yeah, wasn't there this like woman who went on Netflix and told everybody how to organize their shelves and stuff. And I just think, you know what? She could just move over because maybe it's the, what we need is the Holy Spirit to do a little cleaning out of our lives to bring us a little sanity. And by the way, uh, Ms. Kondo, um, I've, I was reading, uh, recently said that, you know what? A little messiness is okay. Uh, It's not the top priority uh, to keep everything clean and organized. What has changed, you might ask? She now has three children. (laughs) That'll do it. That'll do it. When life drives you crazy, proclaim the Lord's greatness and see that the Lord is so good. Then live by faith. Come, children, listen to me, David writes, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. You see, because God is so great and so worthy of our praise, as we saw in verses 1 through 7, and because God is so good as we've just seen in verses 8 through 10, now from verse 11 through the end of Psalm 34, David moves from sharing a testimony to preaching a sermon. He wants to teach us the fear of the Lord. So what is the fear of the Lord? This is a major concept, concept in Scripture. To our ears, that doesn't sound like a good thing, right? You bring up the word fear. Fear is not usually a good thing. But that's okay. We need to keep in mind that at first, we will usually view even the best things of God with suspicion because we live in a world where right and wrong are upside down. James Montgomery Boyce helps us to grasp this essential theme of Scripture when he wrote about verse 11, that David defines the fear of the Lord, quote, not as an emotion or attitude, but by action. Using words later picked up by the Apostle Peter to describe the essentials of a moral life. David is saying that the fear of the Lord is doing right. That is, that it involves obedience. Moreover, since the fear of the Lord is the enjoyment of the Lord, the way to enjoy the Lord To taste and see that he is good is to obey him. Some of us drive with the fear of the police. There's the way we drive when we don't see them and the way we drive when we do. Why is that? Because we know and hopefully respect their authority. The key to the fear of the Lord is faith. We see this in verses 12 through 14, where David makes a clear distinction between those who live by faith and those who don't. Those who live by faith know the difference between good and evil. In verses 12 through 14, David presents us with a series of challenges contrasting evil with good. Like Moses to Israel before they entered the promised land, David gives his readers a choice between life and death, hinging on faith. You see, the difference between good and evil comes down to faith. Think about it. Why does someone keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech, as David instructs in verse 13? Why do they turn away from evil and do what is good, as he says in verse 14? And how do they know what is evil, that they should turn from it, and what is good, that they should do it? Well, this is best illustrated by Genesis chapter three. The issue of faith is at the very heart of the fall of man. Now, just before these verses, of course, Adam and Eve have enjoyed perfect fellowship with God, the fu- with God. Uh, he, they've walked with the garden with him every day, all of that. Uh, but now Eve has her encounter, Eve and Adam have their encounter with Satan at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And after Eve has pretty much gotten the command correct as she repeats it, to to, to Satan to explain, no, this is what the Lord has said. In verse 4, we pick it, pick up this conversation. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, personally, I don't believe there's anything here in the text that tells us there was anything special about that fruit, in the sense that it it had something in its makeup, genetically or whatever, to, to distinguish it. I believe this was all a test about their faith. Did they believe God's word or not? Did they fear the Lord or not? If they believed that the death sentence was both real, that is, God had the power, and honest, that God wasn't kidding or lying to them, they would not have eaten. But Adam and Eve's experience at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil did bring them death, spiritual death in that moment, physical death later. And that happened because they stopped fearing God They stopped putting their faith in him and instead placed their faith in themselves as their own gods. You and I will live according to the definition of good and evil set forth by whoever you worship. If we remain our own God, we will live according to what we think and feel is right or wrong. That's why our culture is so in love with the phrase, my truth. We keep talking about my truth. There's the truth. And then there's no such thing as my truth. If the one true God is your God by faith in Christ, then you will pursue what he says right and wrong are. David's pretty clear about this in verses 12 through 14. Those who are their own gods will find death. Those who want a long life of good things will fear the Lord and live obediently according to his standards of good and evil, not their own. Those who live by faith also cling to the Lord, the refuge of the righteous. You see, if you fear the Lord, you pursue obedience to his standard of right and wrong. David says those who do so will find that God is their refuge. If we do not fear the Lord, David says, the Lord is set against those who do what is evil, and that he will remove all memory of them from the earth. That's verse 16. I say cling to the Lord because among these verses is one of the most precious promises in all of Scripture in verse 18. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those with a crushed spirit. Those words are treasured by all believers who have suffered heartbreak and a crushed spirit. Notice that the righteous will still face hardship and conflict in this life in verse 19. As we noticed earlier in verses 4 through 7, God works through the adversity we face for our, ger, for our good and his glory. But he is faithful, not cruel. There is always a purpose, and he always rescues his own. That rescue may come in the form of the adversity itself ceasing. It may come with a welcome home, good and faithful servant. But the rescue will come. Speaking of the righteous one... Facing adversity, we shouldn't overlook the messianic fulfillment of verse 20, which David says he protects all his bones, not one of them is broken. You may recognize that was quoted in verse nine, excuse me, verse 36 of John chapter 19. When in his gospel and his account of the crucifixion, John wrote, "For these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken' You may recall that since the Jews didn't want the crucified to linger into the Sabbath when their bodies couldn't be cared for, they asked for the soldiers to hasten the deaths of those hanging on those crosses by breaking their legs. Crucifixion is ultimately death by asphyxiation. You die because you lose the strength to lift yourself up to breathe and your lungs filled with blood and other fluid. You die because, in addition to the pain and loss of blood, you can't breathe. The soldiers broke the legs of the others, but didn't need to break Jesus' legs because he had already given up his spirit and died. By the way, that means he preceded in death, the rebel who he promised he would welcome into paradise. And so, as The brother, the prophet Habakkuk echoes David in chapter two, verse four, the righteous one will live by his faith.